Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. This program is being pre-recorded Friday afternoon for this evening at Christagenia, Friday, February 5th, 2021. It has been not quite two months since we had our good friend, League of the South President Dr. Michael Hill, here with us to discuss the current crisis. Of course, that crisis is upon us. And now that we have had our first look at what is coming with the Biden administration and the accompanying Democratic majority in both houses of Congress, we are happy to have him back with us once again, this time to talk about the will to secede. The will to secede is the only way that we can express our natural right and our will to self-determination. But more importantly, abandoning the empire is the only way we can focus our attention on what is truly important, which is our own kith and kin, the survival of our own people. So with that, hello, Dr. Hill. Thank you for being here once again. Bill, it's always my pleasure to be with you. Uh, thank you for inviting me back on. Yes, sir. This is an opportunity we can't pass on. We have to get this message out. It, it's um, the perfect opportunity. And I understand that the League of the South has been in this endeavor for over 25 years now. But there is no more crucial a time than now that white people and, and white Christians, especially in the South, are going to have to find their resolve and stand up for the future of their children. This is a God-given opportunity for us, Bill. Yeah, we've been, we've been in this business now for going on 27 years, and I've never seen a more opportune time to get our message of secession and Southern independence. Uh, for our people out there, and I, I've been uh, I've been saying now for several years um, that we were going to have a situation like we have now. It was just a matter of time. I don't think I was a genius for figuring that out. I think a lot of other people figured it out too. But I wrote a series of articles uh, that you're familiar with for our publication, The Free Magnolia back in 2019 called the, the New Red Terror, of course, alluding to what the uh, Judeo-Bolsheviks did in Tsarist Russia back in eight, 1918 and 1919. And my thesis was that uh, that's coming uh, to America very shortly, particularly if Joe Biden won the election and the Democrats captured both houses of, con of, of Congress, the uh, House and the Senate, which they uh, certainly did. And now they uh, have full control of the United States government. And unlike Republicans, they will use it. They will use it to aggrandize their own power and to beat down any opposition, uh, in fact, to criminalize any opposition to their agenda. And that's pretty much where we stand now. We're in the midst of a communist revolution. And no, I'm not being hyperbolic here. It's a true, real, genuine communist revolution uh, that we're seeing unfolding right here in America. And yes, it can happen here. And it is happening. 
I believe I, I might be wrong. I believe it was Artaxerxes IV of Persia, the king of the Persian Empire at the end of the 5th century BC, who had suffered a coup by his brother and he defeated his brother. And that left 10,000 Greek soldiers who were mercenaries on the losing side of the war. And the emperor had told them that he would be their friends if they laid down their arms. And the Greeks responded that if they were his friends, he would want them to keep their arms. So, of course, they had to fight their way out of Persia. And they did, and they did it successfully. Only half of them survived. That, that's an example to me of what's going on today if, if Americans are going to be disarmed by this Democratic Party. And, and that's coming. I'm going to discuss quite a few bills, or we are going to discuss, because you certainly know about these, quite a few bills in Congress that have already been presented in the first week of Congress aimed at severely diminishing the American, the, the perceived right of Americans to keep and bear arms. If we know the patterns of history and what happened in the Bolshevik Revolution, it's going to be the same thing all over again, that they're not going to stop at our arms. After they get America disarmed, they're going after their property. Oh, uh, yeah. You know, the, the first thing tyrants do is, is to disarm the population so they can't fight back. And then they, uh, they make them slaves. They take their property and they eventually kill them. Uh, and it's usually a slow and uh, not very pleasant death that they suffer. But, well, yeah, I mean, you know, a lot of people, that at least they say that's the line that, that won't be crossed. And once they try to come and take their guns, you know, that, that's when they'll decide to fight back. Uh, they're going to have a chance to prove that now because, as you said, I, I, there, there have been a lot of bills that have been filed uh, in the House of Representatives regarding disarming uh, law-abiding American citizens. And I mean, truly disarming people, uh, you know, registering uh, weapons and registration always leads to confiscation. Well, I've never been a fan of Whether Donald they live, or they'll be coming to take them. I'm sorry. I've never no, been a ahead. fan of Donald Trump or the Republicans, but... Donald Trump might be the last, and, and I'm not going to say white, I'm going to say perceptibly white president, and he very well may be. And, and I was looking, I spent much of yesterday, and I read all of the executive orders issued by Joe Biden. He issued 24 executive orders, which are all published at the website for the Federal Register. I will include all of the pertinent links when I publish this conversation. In the first seven days as president, 24 executive orders. Now, 10 of these are directly related to the false, and I'm going to call it false, because even if COVID is real, the pandemic is false. 10 of these are directly related to the false COVID-19 pandemic, and a few are indirectly related. So over half of these executive orders are related to COVID and to um, related medical issues. But the other half 
are far more treacherous. And, and the way I look at it, the COVID executive orders are all infringements on our basic freedoms. But these, uh, some of these other executive orders are treacherous. And, and I would like to um, discuss some of those, if, if you don't mind. Sure, let's go and let's, let's jump right into it. The, the one of the first, and this is January 20th, the day he was inaugurated, he published a whole slew of these executive orders. One of the first executive orders he came out with was this revocation of certain executive orders concerning federal regulation, revoking some of the, the Trump executive orders. And the whole purpose of his administration is is listed right up front to confront the urgent challenges facing the nation, including the coronavirus disease 2019 pandemic, economic recovery, racial justice, and climate change. So they are his first four priorities. And many of these other executive orders that he had published are even more treacherous or, or reveal the treachery behind what he is saying with, with that statement about racial justice. So he published another executive order, and I, I believe this one may have been like the first, honestly, and it is ensuring a lawful and accurate enumeration of apportionment pursuant to the decennial census. That sounds like a, 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 a noble cause, the way it's worded. I don't know if you're familiar with this. Yeah, but, I'm, I'm familiar with it. Basically, it's going to count all illegal aliens as part of the population for uh, determining uh, districts for House uh, representation in the U.S. Congress. Exactly, sir. Exactly. I know you've been doing your homework, right? I know you I have. have. <laughs> I know you have, too. Well, well, this this executive order, it does. This is going to affect us severely going into the future because it ensures that illegal immigrants are counted, who are counted in the census, are included in the apportionment of legislators. Now, now, most people might think, so what does that matter? But what it matters is that states with high numbers of illegal aliens will gain an undue advantage in Congress over states that have policies which favor natural citizens. Since a congressman, exactly. an American congressman today represents about 700,000 people. And there are at least 12 million illegal immigrants in, in this nation. <clears throat> They're the ones they admit to. There's probably many more than that. But if we, if we go with that figure of 12 million, then by conservative standards, at 700,000 per seat in Congress, that difference could add up to 17 seats in Congress. And even if the 17 seats are not added, and instead each congressman represents 800,000 people instead of 700,000, if the 17 seats are not added, counting the illegal immigrants for apportionment can still cause a transfer of as many as 17 seats to states that favor illegal aliens. 
from the balance of the states. So that also causes a shift of an equal number of future electoral college votes to those same states that favor illegal aliens, like California. Do we think it's fair to California get another five or six or eight seats in Congress because they love their illegal aliens? <laughs> so yeah, when, if- you, uh, when you start figuring this in with the fact that they're likely to make the District of Columbia and Puerto Rico uh, the 51st and 52nd state, then that has four uh, permanently Democratic senators. Uh, and you add that to what they're doing for the House of Representatives, and you've got a one-party state. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and this one executive order means that illegal aliens will have a significant impact, and they shouldn't have a voice. They shouldn't have a voice ever at all. They're illegal. But they'll have a significant impact on the politics and policies of the nation. So the tail really is wagging the dog. Well, it really is. And, and, you know, you're just talking about a portion of it here. We're not talking about the fact that it very soon that these illegals will be voting. Right. Well, that's the next step. (laughs) Yeah, that's exactly right. That's the next step. And, and there are bills in place that, that actually address that, 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 are, yes. that have been put before the House of Representatives in the last week or two Well, weeks what now. this does, and, and you, you know as well as I do, and, you're, uh, and the audience out there does too, it destroys any concept of citizenship. Citizenship has no meaning anymore if you have no borders and you have no control over the people who are coming into your country affecting the electoral process through apportionment and through direct voting. I mean, citizenship in America uh, basically means nothing now. No, nothing at all. It, 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 it's just becoming a geographical incident. That's all it is. Uh, yeah, that's right. Uh, uh, America, like like one of my friends used to say, is an, an extended stay motel. You know, anybody that comes in uh, can stay as long as they want and get all the privileges they want, and somebody else is going to be footing the bill for it. So there you go. Uh, it's a, quite a situation we find ourselves in. And, and and that's his next, the next executive, talking about footing the bill, right? The next executive order that I had to discuss from Biden is advancing racial equity and support for underserved communities through the federal government. And he's speaking about... a fancy about, way of saying that they're going to take your money and my money and give it basically to Negroes and other non-whites out there uh, to provide the magic word equity. Absolutely. And and this word equity, when did we hear this in American politics? Except for the last two years from the most extreme of the Marxist Democrats. That's exactly right. I've never heard the word equity in American politics because it doesn't belong in politics. That's right. just some simple um, that this one reflects the, the the extent of the progressive thinking of the Democratic Party. How far to the left it's gone. 
it could be headed by Marx and Lenin themselves. Biden attacks. Course, his, uh, sure. I'm sorry. No, I, I was going to say that that is exactly the reason that I use the term uh, red terror. And that's why I say that we're in the middle of a communist revolution is they're making no bones about this. They're out in the open about what they're, uh, who they are and what their plans are. And it, it, it's almost like they're saying, you can't stop us. There are more of us now than there are of you, which I, I don't necessarily believe that uh, because I think the election uh, was probably fraudulent and stolen, but that's neither here nor there. The fact is that the communist regime is now in power and they are going to use that power. And it's incumbent upon us to say to them, no, you're not. You know, we're free people. This word equity, it is basically what I saw, what I observed as a young father in the mid-1990s when my kid brought home a Little League trophy. And I said to him, Edward, why'd you get a trophy? Your team sucked. You finished in last place. <laughs> and it did. And, and <laughs> I went to a, enough of the games to know that. I, I, I was a hands-on father. Well, well anyway... He almost burst out in tears and said that he got a trophy for playing, but they <laughs> made him feel as if he deserved that trophy, and and there's no way they deserved a trophy. Well, well, in in this executive order, Biden is attacking systemic racism, and he proposes a whole government equity agenda to remedy systemic racism. I compared equity and equality from a dictionary and equality mm -hmm. is defined as the state of being equally equal, especially in, and, and this is the whole idea of equality in the declaration of independence, especially in status right. rights and opportunities. Right. But equity is the quality of being fair and impartial. And, and the assessment of and execution of this by a government is very subjective. They are trying to guarantee equal outcomes. That's it. But equal outcomes cannot be guaranteed even if there is equal opportunity. If you and I both no. have the opportunity to compete in running a race and you finish 100 yards ahead of me, Whose fault is that? Is that your fault? So you're going to be set back 50 yards so I might be able to catch up? <laughs> you're going to be moved up 50 yards, so we'll, be, we'll have equity there. So. Well, well, right. Basically, that's what they're talking about. Sure. That there's a, 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 I forget which one it was. I saw this on, on the page of the North Carolina University that said, equality is typically defined as treating everyone the same and giving everyone access to the same opportunities. Well, that's fine. Any one of us can go try out for the football team. Doesn't mean we're going to get the same outcomes. The, the university went on to say, meanwhile, equity refers to proportional representation by race, class, gender, etc. in those same opportunities. So right. that's not dictating who gets an opportunity. That's dictating the outcome. Yeah, and, that's dictating who wins and who loses. Well, well right. Uh, imagine a football team, and there's 12 players on the field, and six of them have to be female. 
And, and then two of them have to be black because that's 13% of the population or whatever. And, and we need one Hispanic and half a Chinaman on, on the football field. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Would the football, the, the professional sports associations agree with that? Because that's equity. No, they, they wouldn't agree with it because it's, it's only it's, uh, prima facie. It's, it's ridiculous. And nobody would nobody would watch their games. So uh, nobody with any sense is going to agree to this. But it's not going to be something that you get to accept or reject. It's going to be forced down your throats. And, and what this means is that, uh, in a, and I always like to break things down to their most simple components, Bill, and that means they're going to be taking uh, your wealth and they're going to give, be giving it to unproductive Negroes and other non-whites. And I guarantee you that it's going to be coming from white people. It won't be coming from Jews. They, they're, they always manage to protect themselves in situations like this, but it'll be coming from normal, hardworking, uh, middle-class and working-class white folks. That's the target. Well, well, that's what the Bolsheviks did. They pushed millions of Russians off of their farms so that they would no longer be self-sufficient into the cities. And then they took people with a a three-bedroom house and maybe two kids and forced those people to take in two other families so that they could each, each family could have its own bedroom. So if you have right. extra bedrooms in your house, Leroy and Sambo are going to be moving in with you. That's exactly right. And you don't have any protection for what they might do to your family. Absolutely not. Because they're not going to respect your bedroom or your daughter. No, and if you, no that's right. And if you try to defend your family, then uh, you will be uh, taken to court and you will be prosecuted. And then you will be thrown into into jail. Absolutely. Uh, this is this this playbook. We know this playbook, Bill. We've seen it. It's it, it's the history of the Bolshevik Revolution is right there for for anybody to read if they ever would. They could see the same That's exact right. pattern in history, except that it happened a lot faster then. That's right. Well, we uh we're we're, we're certainly facing this uh. And anyone who uh, who doesn't believe it uh, is going to be in for a rude awakening. Well, it gets worse from here because it's not only blacks and Hispanics who are going to be running the country. One of them, um, and I'm going going to skip over a few that that are seemingly incidental. I, I mean, he he revoked several executive orders of Trump's on immigration. He's reuniting illegal immigrant families, what, which rewards lawbreakers and encourages more illegal immigration. So, so he's doing things like that. But then coming down to, and it's the same day, January 20th, it's the same batch of, of executive orders preventing and combating discrimination on the basis of gender identity or sexual orientation. And and this is evil. In in the 1970s, a Congress making laws in favor of equal opportunity based on sex could have never foreseen this. The Congress that voted for the Equal Opportunity Act or for Title VII would have never foreseen anyone being able to define their own gender 
and acquiring all the rights or privileges of that other gender. Wow. No, this is, com- this is completely crazy. I mean, this is just, this is insanity on stilts, you know, on steroids. Uh, nobody, nobody 50 years ago, when, when a lot of this stuff was getting started, nobody would have foreseen the ridiculous nature of what we're seeing now about, you know, uh, I've lost count of all the potential genders there are out there. And, and you know, people, people are asked to believe this and take it seriously. Um, you, you can't run a country on such ridiculous notions of reality. It, it just won't work. And that, that gives me hope that normal, productive people out there are going to see this and shake their heads and saying, I'm not going to be a part of it because this is going to crash everything and, and make it burn. And we have got to have an alternative to this. And I think that people are going to start looking at alternatives, Bill, that they never, never thought that they would look at before. And some of them that may have to be pulled out and dusted off and reused in this country. So, 1861. Yes, sir. I agree. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's exactly what I was talking about. 1860 and 61. Well, this Biden victory and these executive orders, and, and it all coincides with this last census and, and this Democratic majority in both houses of Congress. When we see the handwriting on the wall, a, a child could figure out that there is no more hope of turning back the clock in America. It's done. It's done. That's right, Bill. And that, that, that is what is important for Mr. and Mrs. America to understand. We have reached a point where we've stepped across the line of no return. And it's just, it's just like we, I think we were talking about earlier uh, before the show started today that there will never be another white president of the United States. And people say, what about Joe Biden? Joe Biden's not the president. He's an he's an he's he's administrative figurehead. He's not running the show. There will never be another white uh, elected as president of the United States and whites are done dominating the, uh, the Congress. And which means that we don't have control over the government that our founding fathers gave us. And when you don't have control over that government and you are hated and envied like white people are, and that's been its own process over the last 40 or 50 years, demonizing whites, we're going to see uh, the fruits of that. They're going to be awfully sour for a lot of white people. And they need to wake up to this reality that there is no going back, that this is already changed and it can't be undone under the present system or under the present rules or circumstances. Absolutely. It's far too late. It's far too gone. And these Democrats, and I'm not going to, the Republicans are complicit in this, right? The Republicans have played, they played the immigration game themselves for 50 or a hundred years and, and they've always wanted immigration, but for different reasons. The first great 
amnesty of illegal immigrants was Ronald Reagan, three million Mexicans back in the early eighties. So, so it's both parties have us in this position. But these Democrats are making sure with these, with, with this legislation and with these executive orders that there is no going back at all. And if we don't see the handwriting on the wall now, that, that, then if, if Americans in general don't begin to question their federal government and, and understand that they must separate themselves from it, then it's definitely over for Christian white America. Oh, absolutely it is. And, and it's, that, it's that serious. It's at that point where people have a decision to make. I, I, I've been hearing people say, well, you know, we just need to read out the Republican Party and get Republicans in name only. These are not Republicans in name only. They're Republicans. You know, this right. is what Republicans do. It's what they've always done. Uh, they are just as complicit. And I would say even more uh, guilty because, look, you, you know an enemy. An enemy identifies himself, and when he tries to stab you, he tries to stab you in your chest. And you can ostensibly you, you can defend yourself against him. But the Republicans are backstabbers. You know, they always put their arm around you, tell you they're, they're your friend, they're working for you. And at the same time, they're getting that knife ready to stab you in the back with. And that's what they've done. Uh, the Republican Party is no solution for white people. They have bought into every uh, perverse ideology and perverse notion of liberalism, of communism, whatever you want to call it, over the last 50 or 60 years. Uh, and today, you know, they're, they're just uh, the, the kind of the shadow of this leftist revolution. Uh, they're, they're not to be uh, depended on. They're not to be used as a vehicle for doing what we need to do, which is basically organizing white people for their own survival. So there has to be some thinking outside of the box, a new paradigm, because the GOP is dead. This whole love affair with the GOP and, and nationalists, I never understood this my whole life. And, and even though when I was a young man in New Jersey, which was already a Marxist democratic state, that I voted Republican simply because it was the only alternative I had. Sure. And I was hated for it because I was a public servant, right? I was on the public payroll and I was a Republican. I was hated for that, but I didn't care. And I understood the Marxism of the Democrats back in the 1980s. Well, I also understood that who brought us civil rights? The Republican Eisenhower. Who brought us equal opportunity? The Republican Nixon. Who made that first great illegal Mexican amnesty? The Republican Reagan. And the Republicans have a history of doing this to white America. And, and that they're probably foremost, they were ahead of the Democrats in this in the 1950s. Of course. Well, let, let me uh, give a brief history lesson to your, your uh, listeners out there. The Republican Party, which started in the 1850s, was a party that was in large part formed under the influence of the Red 48ers. 
basically Germans, and I, I really haven't done, done enough research on this to figure out how many of them were Jews and how many of them were not, but they, they were uh, the Red Republicans that had been driven out of Germany after the failed 1848 revolution there. There, there were several Red Revolutions uh, across Europe in the 1840s, and one in Germany, and those German revolutionaries ended up in the United States, Right. Uh, a lot of them uh, out around St. Louis, and they were very instrumental in forming the Republican Party, uh, uh, which, of course, put uh, John C. Fremont uh, up as a candidate first and then put a successful candidate up with Lincoln. But th their whole origins are red. Um, you know, my, my family my family was a Democrat family. <laughs> my granddaddy, God rest his soul, uh, uh, said, you know, in the 1960s, he said, I can't vote for the Democrats anymore. Because I, uh, I don't recognize him. He said, but I sure as hell ain't voting for no damn Republican. So he, he wouldn't vote because uh, he knew what the Republicans were. Well, when I was a young man, the Dixiecrat politicians, the senators and congressmen from the South, always appealed to me a lot more than the Republicans. But they were out of my reach, being in the North. And all of the right. Democrats in the North were, were basically Marxists. And... <laughs> It, it, you're, well, you're, that, that's why you had that split in 1948 between the Southern Democrats and the Democrats in the rest of the country. The Democrats in the rest of the country had become FDR Democrats. Right. And the Southern Democrats were old-line Jefferson Davis Democrats. You know, so there was that natural split there. But uh, the Dixiecrat Party, you know, was a minority uh, uh, rump in the Democratic Party, and they obviously eventually morphed into the Republican Party in the 1960s and 70s. So there you go. The Republican Party became the lesser of two evils for Southerners. And now we're seeing just how evil the damn organization was from the start. Well, my grandmother's generation and, and my grandmother, my mother's mother, is the only um, – line of my heritage that was actually a Yankee, a, a New England Yankee for 300 years. So right. she worshipped Roosevelt because she remembered the Depression, and she thinks Roosevelt got us out of the Depression and won the war, and she worshipped the Kennedys. And, and everybody I knew in Massachusetts worshipped the Kennedys. They were like the, the, the princes of New England. Oh, sure. Like so a royal family. Th they would not dare to depart from the Democratic Party, which we see Massachusetts and, and Vermont and, and the, the, the coasts of New Hampshire and Maine are, are solid blue right there with New York City and North Jersey to this very day. They're solid right. blue. They will always be solid Democrat because of that legacy of Roosevelt and the Kennedys. Mm-hmm. Yep. It, it's um, it's an artificial fealty. It's an it's an it it's it's an artificial feeling of, of um dedication to to these ghosts that causes them today to vote for an Obama or a Biden or, or that they would vote for Nancy Pelosi in a minute. In a sure. heartbeat. 
That's so, right. As long as it had that uh, had Democrat that's you know, it. by the side of the name. That's all but, you it know, takes. Here's, where we, here's pretty much where we stand today, I think, a bill politically, is that white, white people, you know, and, I, and I'm not talking about uh, people like us who are, who are conscious and active white nationalists. I'm talking about white people in general, the working class, the middle class, et cetera. They have no political representation, maybe on their local level, maybe on the state level. I'm not sure, but certainly not on the national level. The Democrat Party is openly and blatantly anti-white. I mean, there's no doubt about that. They are openly and blatantly anti-white communist. The Republican Party uh, is full of uh, weak need liars who, uh, when pressed, will side with the establishment, i.e. the Democrats, every time against white interest. So if, if you're white and you, you're looking to the future uh, for political representation, and if you don't have political representation, your property and your lives are in jeopardy. Um, in, in a country that's been completely politicized, and this one has. So that, that begs the question for white people, not just white nationalists, but white people everywhere. What's your solution? Uh, if you don't have a political party that represents you, and you have political parties that either A, in the Democrats' case, openly hate you, or B, in the Republicans' case, uh, we'll say a few nice things to, to get you to vote for them, but then stab you in the back when it really counts. What are you going to do? You know, you, you can do nothing and eventually uh, accept your own demise and that of your future future generations. Or you are going to have to get outside of the box and establish another paradigm, political paradigm, to operate in for your very survival and prosperity. Absolutely. Well, once these th- these Biden policies take root, it's done. I, I don't know how people could not see that they are not only disenfranchised by one election because their boy lost, they're permanently disenfranchised. That there's no uh, coming yeah, back. It, 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 that, that's right. It, it, it's like, and I, I've often uh, alluded to it this way, you know, if the moment you give up your weapon in the face of a threat, you're dead. Right. There's no, go- there's no going back. Once that weapon is out of your hands, you're a dead man. Well, that's the same situation we're facing here. People say, oh, well, well, well the Republicans will, you know, in, in the off-year election in 2022, they'll probably take the House back. And in 2024, you know, Trump will be back and, They'll retake the Senate, and there's not going to be any more fair elections. This is it. The line has been crossed. And the Democrats, I will give them credit for this, the the communists, they know what to do with power when they get it. And the first thing you don't do is give it up, and they will never give it up. And the line's been crossed. It's too late. It's like you've given up your weapon, and you'll never get it back. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and this election wasn't even fair, but we've already discussed that in our last program, in our last discussion. Right. Well, well, this Biden, this um, gender identity agenda 
that he has going on. I, I mean, there's no doubt to me there are going to be men in every women's bathroom. There are going to be boys in every girl's bathroom. There are going to be boys on every female sports team. I have no doubt. And, and that's going to be the result within the next, before the next election, but before the next midterm, this is going to be a done deal. And there's going to be no turning back. All persons should receive equal treatment under the law, no matter their gender identity or sexual orientation. Laws that prohibit sex discrimination, pro prohibit discrimination on the basis of gender identity or sexual orientation, that, that's what he's going after. It is yeah. to... to Totally level the field. If you say you're a girl or, or a woman, you could just walk into the woman's bathroom and use it. It, it doesn't matter. And, and then if you rape some girl, you could just say you're a woman that's a lesbian. And, and it don't matter what your real <laughs> sex coming. is. That's right. That's coming. Absolutely. Um, well, I, I tell you, uh, I think there may be an unintended backlash in this. I think a lot of a lot of right thinking white folks are just simply going to say this. I simply won't go out in public anywhere where there is a uh, a public uh, bathroom restroom to use because I can't protect my 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 wife and my daughters. So we're just staying home, and that's going to have a tremendous economic and social impact because a lot of people are simply not going to accept this. As long as they stay away from the corporate chains and the WalMarts and the Targets. That that'll work. Uh, yeah, and I, I think in uh, in small privately owned businesses, I think there's going to be a wink and a nod agreement among the uh, people who own these and run them and, and their customers that uh, we know which bathrooms that you're supposed to use, and we're going to enforce that here. Uh, so uh, let, let's just keep that clear. When you come in here, you don't have to worry about your wife or daughter. Uh, going into the restroom and a man following them because secretly we don't allow that here. And that's what, that's what's going to happen. And I don't think the state has enough uh, firepower, manpower, whatever you want to call it, as it were, to, to police every single small uh, business venue to make sure that this is done. They, they'll do the chains and they'll, they'll make some, you know, highly publicized arrest of, uh, husbands or, or fathers defending their honor of their daughters or wives, and uh, but but I, I just think that most sane people are just not going to accept this. Well, I pray, but when it's forced on them, I pray that they have the backbone to stand up and do something about it. And that goes back to 1861. <laughs> yes, it does. So we keep alluding we keep alluding to that very uh, important uh, year in our history. For, for a good reason. Uh, obviously, that's the, the year, uh, well, beginning in uh, December of 1860 and then going on through the spring and summer of 1861 when the uh, southern states left the Union in order to protect their rights. And that talk is already going on down here in uh, certain southern states. And I think it's going to increase in intensity and frequency. Well, well I pray... And, and there were other executive orders by Biden that, that was he took a five day break on January 25th. He signed an executive order allowing trannies, trans, tra, transsexuals in the military 
under the gender of their court of, of their choice, of course. So Trump right. had had stopped that. And Biden is going forward with it now. So you don't know who you're fighting alongside or, or you may not. I, I mean, you may not. These young men, a lot of these city kids can't figure it out. I know that. I've seen it in action, right? <laughs> right. He, he's um, well, closing the privately operated prisons. Ahead, I'm, sorry. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I, I was going to jump in and say that what, what you were saying about uh, transgenders, etc. Uh, in the U.S. military, uh, if if indeed we do go back to the solutions of 1861, the weaker the U.S. military is, the better it may be for the South. Yes, sir. I agree. <laughs> that they I rely just to on make that point. That they have this concept, I, I believe, of of um, equality in warfare, because no man. That there were very few. I mean, there are a few, right? There are some special forces and, and some Navy SEALs that are still real warriors, but very few comparatively and, and proportionately to armies of the past, where today that you could be a girl. Even if you're a boy, you could be a girl in, in warfare because you just press a few buttons and, and we have all this technology now that we can win battles without real warriors, as long as we have the technology and the infrastructure to support it. That, yeah, that, that, that's true up to a point, but I, I still believe, and I, I always will until somebody proves me wrong, that you can, you can go only so far with technology and that if you're really, really going to win a conflict, you have to put boots on the ground. And we don't have the boots to put on the ground. We may have, uh, you know, some <laughs> high heels and various other attire, right. foot attire to put on the ground, but no real boots like you're talking about, Bill. No, no really elite uh, uh, military units. I mean, we have some. They're special forces, of course, but their numbers are very small. Um, but the general condition of the ground forces, uh, infantry combat forces of the U.S. Army are terrible. Uh, I, I wouldn't, uh, I, I wouldn't want to send them in to, you know, to, to fight a, a third world country uh, <laughs> because, you know, they, they get their, they got their butts kicked in, in Vietnam and it hadn't gotten any better since. And I, I remember under Clinton when they were talking about sending American troops into Serbia. Well, I've got a bunch of Serbian friends and uh, I've, a little, little bit familiar with the Balkans, um, but, but I can tell you this: I was looking forward to seeing the United States uh, Army being sent into the meat grinder that Serbia would have been for them, and, and uh, they they didn't get sent in. It was a good thing for the U.S. Army they didn't. Uh, but I, I still think that eventually you have to send boots on the ground, and we don't have any boots, and that may be a good thing for us Southern secessionists. Well, well, absolutely, and and it's it's fitting that you brought up Serbia because those troops were there to uphold the supposed right to self determination of the Albanians in Kosovo. That's right, Muslim. It was it was to help the Muslims against the Christians. Well, well, right, and and to split off and to become independent from them. So my point is that the That's United right. States government will uphold the right to secede when it's politically expedient for the United States government. Sure. 
Well, sure. I mean, the United States government's always been been a big hypocrite. Uh, they'll they'll support secession and uh, breakaway uh, movements in places where that's beneficial to them. But you start talking about it uh, in the uh, 50 states, or certainly the 48 contiguous states, and it's a no. We can't have that here. Absolutely. You know, even even though uh, it, it it certainly is a right that our ancestors had, and it's one that we still have. The balance, and, and that's absolutely true, and, and, and I wholeheartedly agree, but there's certainly nothing I could add to that. That, that was well said. That The balance of the um, Biden executive orders are, are on climate and science and prisons and, and mostly on COVID. There's a few on labor relations and ethics that, that aren't really groundbreaking or, or oppressive or that important to our dis- discussion. Of, of course, the entire COVID pandemic scare, that is oppressive because it erodes our general rights. But it seems that most people are happy to give those up, that they're happy to um, wear diapers on their faces everywhere they go and, and things like that. And, and, and that, that's the biggest sign of, of the trouble that we have and the challenges before us is that people so oh, yeah. easily go along with that. Afraid of a boogie. Yeah, people easily easily give up their freedoms like that, and you know, some sometimes without even thinking about it. I haven't, uh, and I'm not saying this to brag. I mean, it's just a fact. I haven't worn a mask uh, yet, and I don't plan on it. Well, well, right, and we feel the same way. And and we've walked out of stores that tried to require us to wear masks. We turn around and leave, and and we walked out of restaurants in Tennessee that that um as far north as Tennessee that tried to require us to wear masks and, and we just left and went hungry drove 20 miles down the road. So that that's what we're not going to wear them either. Well, well that's it for Biden's executive orders, but I, I was looking at the bills before Congress and, and it's that this is only eight days, right? Even though I was researching this yesterday and the day before the, the latest real information I have, online at federal websites is up to and including the 28th, I believe, of January. And already there were 854 bills proposed before the 117th Congress in the first eight days. Wow. Amazing. And and who could possibly go through all of them? But I would... (laughs) I would like to bother you just to read a few short passages from this House Resolution 350, which is to authorize dedicated domestic terrorism offices within the Department of Homeland Security, the Department of Justice, and the Federal Bureau of Investigation to analyze and monitor domestic terrorists. That sounds wonderful. Until you read the bill and we find out that we are the domestic terrorists. <laughs> That's right. It's us. <laughs> that, that this isn't talking about the Jewish kids that shoot up schools. It's not talking about the Muslims that shoot up military bases. It's talking about us. <laughs> That's right. We are the enemy. We, and it's finally been put out there for everyone to see. We white folks are the enemy, <laughs> no matter the fact that it's our ancestors who founded this place and left it for us. We are now the enemy. Look, that's what happens when you let Jews take over your country. 
Absolutely. And, and I don't know who this Illinois Democrat is, Bradley Schneider, and he has a few co-sponsors, but he is most responsible for this particular bill. Right, the I text, think he's a Jew, by the way. I wouldn't doubt it. But the text of this bill is not yet available. Even though there were 500 other bills proposed after this one, the text of this one is not yet available. I can't wait to read this. Yeah. And all the appropriate links will be included with the notes when, when I post this, this discussion that we're having. That This is co-sponsored by Michigan Republican Fred Upton. And all I could find, and that's a Republican, right? This is a bipartisan bill. So it's not just oh, the yeah. Democrats to blame for this one. It, it's both parties in Congress can be blamed for this one. And all I have is a press release that I found on the bill. And I would just like to read a, a couple of pa short paragraphs from it, if, if you don't mind, sir. No, the, go ahead. The attack on the U.S. Capitol, this is quotes from Upton, earlier this month was the latest example of domestic terrorism. But the threat of domestic terrorism remains very real. We cannot turn a blind eye to it. The Domestic Terrorism Prevention Act will equip like they're not already equipped, will equip our law enforcement leaders with the tools needed to keep help keep our homes, families, and communities across the country safe. And, and of course, law enforcement in America is very well equipped to do everything they can, but they're not intended to ever keep people safe. They're only intended to keep governmental order. The, the police in your community have never kept anybody safe. They'll just go around and clean up the mess and figure out the culprit after it's over. Well, well, it goes on to say that last Congress, this act, DTPA, they call it, overwhelmingly passed the House in a two-thirds voice vote after passing out of the House Judiciary Committee 24 to 2. So it has overwhelming support in the House with a Republican majority. Or, or, or at least with a, a more equal parity, but I think the Republicans had a majority the last Congress. I could be wrong, but it's going to have even more support now. Yeah, it certainly will. Uh, yeah, they're talking about keeping, uh, you know, families and and all safe, property safe. Uh, it's going to keep not going to keep your safe. It's not going to keep mine safe. Right. Um, we're pretty much we're pretty much on our own. Absolutely. Well, well, the bill goes on and it says DTPA would authorize three offices. These are special departments within these agencies, one each within the Department of Homeland Security, the Department of Justice and the Federal Bureau of Investigation to monitor, investigate and prosecute cases of domestic terrorism. Now, now the good parts coming up. The bill also requires these offices to provide Congress with joint biannual reports assessing the state of domestic terrorism threats with a spe specific focus, a specific focus on white supremacists. So it has a go. specific focus on the people least likely to commit real crimes, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> of course, this is all reality turned upside down. It's, it's the old satanic principle of inversion 
you know, accuse your enemy of what you or you yourself are guilty of. Uh, we have terrorists in this country, for sure, but they're not white people. Uh, it's it's not white uh, supremacy that's the problem. You and I and, and your listening audience know that the real problem in this country is Jew supremacy, and that's what this uh, is going to lead to further. It's going to further cement their power into place by demonizing and terrorizing the one enemy, white people, who could do something to overturn this threat and problem of Jew supremacy. Absolutely. They're only protecting the the game that they've basically been playing for 50 years, and now it's becoming more and more exposed to the public how they played this game, and they're protecting their own racket. And 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 they've come to rule the country, and they're protecting that. They're, yeah, they're... any any opposition to the revolution that they've carried out is right now being criminalized. Every and I I told some people about this before the election. I said if 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 this communist regime comes in, they will immediately immediately start to brand all opposition to it as domestic terrorism. And sure enough, here we go. That's it. And and that's how we are going to be labeled. That's right. The, yeah, uh, that's a reality. White people need to get ready to be labeled domestic terrorists. If you're a white person who does anything, even just speak out in the interest of yourself and your your people. That's it. Absolutely. You're, you're an anti-Semite first, even if you don't say anything about Jews. That's right. Well, Just the last line... The fact that you're white. The, the last line in this press release also expresses, expresses that. The act directs the three agencies that were named earlier, the Department of Homeland Security, Department of Justice, and FBI, and the Department of Defense to establish an interagency task force to combat white supremacist infiltration of the uniformed services and federal law enforcement. So it's news to me, but I guess there are white supremacists all over the government. (laughs) (laughs) If only. Well, well, that's the, the, the most foreboding of the legislation that I was able to investigate leading up to this program. I mean, 854 bills in Congress the first week. If I did this full time, it would take me two or three weeks to read all that text, but it's not even available, half of it. (laughs) And and then to make um, valid assessments of, of what these bills are all saying. Well, that should tell you something. Maybe they don't want us to know what's in them. They're just going to pass them and say, uh, well, when we arrest you, we'll find something, some law that you've broken somewhere because we've got all this material that we can pull out and read, and we will find some crime that you've committed. Absolutely. And, And if this bill left committee 24 to 2 in the last Congress, it's going to leave 26 to nothing in this one. Yeah, who 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 can uh, who can face up to the Jew media if they don't uh, vote to put down white supremacy? You know, 
And the, because the question that will be asked, if, if anybody opposed such a draconian measure as this, do you support white supremacy? Or, or they'll and be labeled, no right? Poli- no politician is going to, to say yes to that, you know? Right. If you didn't vote for our bill, you must be a Nazi. <laughs> That's exactly right. That's the game that they play so effectively. And, and you know, I, I, you and I have been telling people for years that what you do is you stand up and say, okay, you call me whatever you want to. I don't care. You know, I know, I know where my interests lie. You can call me a Nazi or a white supremacist or whatever. I can call you a communist or a Jew supremacist. How does that work? You know, but Absolutely. we know who controls the narrative, so... Well, well, the difference is that our websites get a lot less traffic than CNN or Fox News or one of their websites. Yeah, that's right. And and that's disappointing. But but they fight their best to keep it that way. That well, they... of course. I mean, controlling the narrative is is part of keeping our people in the dark, you know, and uh, letting letting them believe that they are out there by themselves and what they believe is immoral, uh, unethical, uh, illegal. Uh, you know, we, we've got to get the word out to our people that, hey, standing up and organizing for your own interest and defense is, uh, is, is a very godly thing to do. Uh, but, you know, we do have problems getting the word out. But, hey, I mean, you're, you're doing a great job in Christiania. Uh, we try to do as best we can with the League of the South. But we just have to keep on pushing and Trust in Yahweh to, uh, to to be our sword and shield. Well, well, right. We have to, as Paul of Tarsus said, we have to fight the fight. Even if we know right. we're going to lose, we have to fight the fight because we seek to please God. Absolutely. And there couldn't be any more joyous or noble thing than to be a warrior for uh, for our God and, uh, and, and our people. I absolutely agree, sir. And and that should be the first cause of why we're in this, and and that is for the good of our people, whether they know it or not. They they might know it tomorrow if they don't know it today, but eventually they're going to all wake up. Yeah, that's right. They're going to know it sooner or later, and I just pray that it isn't too late when they find out. Well, we're told Babylon's going to call, going to fall, and that, I think, is the primary motivation for, for the will to secede, that the participation in, in, in organizations like the League of the South, it, it's, um, you know, I, I, I know that we've been battered since Charlottesville, but we are the only organization of its kind and, and what, which attempts to turn people away in the mainstream, aside from Christian, aside from Christian religion. Or theology, what which attempts to attract like-minded people and turn them away from that this federal empire and this losing political process, where we're never going to win, and and get them interested in their own people and and their own autonomy. That's it. We have we have a new game uh, that that our people can play a game that they actually have a chance of winning. There's no chance of winning the current game, playing in the current system. And we have to to let our people know that before it's too late. And I I do think that that with with uh, with uh, the help of uh, of our Lord 
we're we're going to be able to do that. And it, it's just like you said, if we if we're not successful, at least we fought. But I, I'm very optimistic about all this bill because you know I I, I believe that evil uh, cannot prosper, evil cannot build anything, it can only destroy. And maybe this evil is going to destroy the system that it purports to uphold. Uh, and something good will take its place. Uh, that's the optimism that I go about my business with every day, is that this evil system is, is doomed to fail and to fall. And I know it's going to do a lot of damage uh, in the process of falling, but that's just the price that we have to pay. And if it takes some of us down with it, uh, we'll just go on to our eternal reward and uh, leave the fight to the next generation. But... Uh, we we have to fight. You're right. At the same time, they're trying their best to take away the, the tools of last resort in that fight. And I know you want to talk about House Resolution 127. You, you knew oh, the yeah, number of absolutely. it before I even mentioned it. So, Well, I, I pay attention to things like that because uh, I am uh, an avid, an avid shooter and uh, – I believe in uh, the right to self-defense and have always practiced it. And that jumped out at me because of that. And uh, it's, a, it's a very draconian bill. And it would uh, basically criminalize the ownership of most effective firearms and ammunition. And whether it will pass, we, we'll have to see, but it's certainly been introduced. Uh, but I, I'll, since you've got the, the text out there probably in front of you, I'll, I'll let you tell everybody what's in it. Well, well, right. All I have is the synopsis from the Federal Register website. And it, it, it says that this bill is to, and, and it's always couched in nice, kind terms, as if it's well, permitting something. But it's not permitting anything. <laughs> it's restricting to provide for the licensing of firearm and ammunition possession and the registration of firearms and to prohibit the possession of certain ammunition. So once all these firearms are registered, if this bill passed, if everybody voluntarily registered their firearms, just like they voluntarily wear face masks, then the next step, maybe next year or the year after, is to start removing certain types of firearms from those people until there aren't anything left. That's right. And if they're registered, they know where they are. Exactly. That's, that's why registration always leads to confiscation. Absolutely. Me, I don't have any, I don't have any firearms. You know, uh, I, I, I ended up losing them in a, in a un, very unfortunate accident years ago, and I just don't have any. So... Well, you'd probably only get yourself in trouble. I've got a couple of Glock pistols, a 45 and a nine millimeter. And, uh, that's pretty, that's pretty much it. You're doing better than I am, sir. For, for, um, reasons of federal tyranny and oppression. That's all I'm saying. I understand. understand. Well, 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 this is that this bill, this HR 127 was, is proposed by Sheila Jackson Lee, who who was a a negress from Texas, I think Houston, I'm not sure. But the same congresswoman, and if I have to call her a woman, she has also proposed H.R. 125, which is the Not Sorry Act of 2021, 
that extends waiting periods. H.R. 130, which is the Kimberly Vaughn. They always name these bills after some victim, right? Kimberly Vaughn Firearm Safe Storage Act, telling you how to store your weapon and how to transport it. And the H.R. 121, the Gun Violence Reduction Resources Act, which really just hires 200 new cops to enforce gun laws. And and then there's H.R. 135, the Accidental Firearms Transfer Reporting Act of 2021. So if you have somebody ineligible to purchase a weapon because he's a felon or, or he is a mentally ill, documented, mentally ill individual, and he goes and buys a gun at a gun show, then that's an accidental purchase and she is trying to put legislation in pay, in place to make sure that we go back and get these guns off these people that bought them that weren't supposed to, basically. <laughs> so, so she has, um, she herself has filed a plethora of firearms legislation in one week. So who knows what's coming? That's only the beginning. She also has a Mental Health and Gun Violence Prevention Act of 2021 to increase access to mental health care treatment and services and to encourage and assist reporting of relevant disqualifying mental health information to the National Instant Criminal Background Check System. So, so if you were treated for depression, I guess, a few years ago, it's going to go into the NCIC and, and you're not going to be able to buy a firearm five or six or ten years later? Well, I think we know what they're intending. Um, and as I said, I always like to boil things down to their fundamental nature. Uh, you know, they're, they're criminalizing whiteness as domestic terrorism, and then they are preventing us from defending ourselves when they come to carry us off where, wherever they plan to carry us off to. I mean, it's the same old communist playbook uh, from 100 years ago in Tsarist Russia. And anyone who can't see that is just, uh, is just blind. Absolutely. And that's not the end of the firearms bills, but that's probably enough. But they're also attempting to prohibit the transfer of firearms at gun shows by a person who is not a federally licensed firearms dealer. So if you have a few guns and, and, and you don't hunt any longer or, or you don't need these guns and you want to bring them to a gun show and sell them, you can't unless you're a federally licensed firearms dealer. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, they're going to circumscribe in every way they can the ability to uh, acquire firearms and ammunition, and then to keep firearms and ammunition that you already have. They will, they will outlaw, outlaw these things, and the possession, very possession of them will be a criminal offense. And I'm, I don't think that they're stupid enough right now to come around door-to-door and try to confiscate weapons. I could be wrong about that in the future. What I think they'll do is uh, perhaps stop people and do searches of their automobile. And if they're found to be in violation of any of these gun laws, then they will be sent into the uh, criminal justice system and run through the ringer there. And that's how they'll get people, make people 
afraid to carry a firearm on their person or in their vehicle and just basically restrict them to being kept at home uh, where, you know, obviously people can't defend themselves unless somebody actually comes to their home. But they, they will use fear, fear of being stopped and arrested for possessing something that has now been deemed illegal. Uh, I can I can see that that happening uh, fairly soon. So aside from all that, there are three other bills out of those 854 that caught my attention. And the first one, and this is House Joint Resolution 14, which is a pretty low number, so it must have been from the first day of Congress, proposing an amendment to the Constitution of the United States to abolish the Electoral College and to provide for direct <laughs> election of the president and vice president. So, so if they don't shift enough of those states blue with the illegal immigration and, and apportionment, that, then they're going to just do away with the electoral electrical electoral college altogether right and, and then that there's hr 51 so that's also first day and that is to that's the washington dc admission act yeah. to make the district of columbia is a state and and in my opinion that's unconstitutional but washington it dc is. itself is unconstitutional oh yeah absolutely uh, washington dc is a district it's not a state. It doesn't have the qualifications to be a state. Uh, it is a federal district, and some people even say, I, I'm, I'm not qualified to, to speak uh, of the veracity of this, but some people say that, that D.C. is uh, is an unconstitutional uh, foreign enclave uh, here on this continent. But I, again, I won't get into that, but certainly it does not qualify to be a state. No, that, that is absolutely true. It does not qualify. And, and the District of Columbia, of course, was made up of chunks of land that were appropriated from the states of Virginia and Maryland. That's correct. And it's a, it's a, it's a seat. It's a seat of government. The Constitution, the United States Constitution, and I have a copy of it at my website, it it actually says that the district chosen, because they didn't have one yet, for the seat of the government it forms should not exceed 10 square miles. But Washington, sure. D.C. has somehow grown to 70 square miles. Mm -hmm. So all those, uh, the, the actual seat of government should not exceed 10 square miles. And according to the Constitution, most of those 700,000 people shouldn't be living, shouldn't be considered residents of Washington, D.C. They should be considered residents of either Maryland or Virginia. That's it. Aside from that, no part of a state or states can be taken and formed into another state. And that is Article 4, Section 3 of the Constitution, unless the legislatures of both states give their consent. So, I mean, both states are in the hands of Democrats, and it's very plausible that they would give their consent for that reason. But 
that there are barriers to this bill that I don't, I didn't see the bill discuss the barriers, right? I didn't. I read the text of the bill. Right, exactly. Uh, they, you know, to hell with the Constitution. They'd find a way. They'd find a way to get it done. That's my point. Uh, sir. And, so, <laughs> and and some court, some court would rubber stamp it for them, and the American people would be none the wiser. But all these, all, all these bills, all these oversights, they must know that the Constitution says that the government gets the seat of government gets ten square miles. It's in there in black and white. They sure. must know it's there, but they don't care about it. They've never cared about the Constitution. No, absolutely not. It's just an impediment to them. You know, it's it's not something to be revered and cherished and, and used as, as a guide, a fundamental guide to, to how you conduct the affairs of government. It's just an impediment to, to their power. And that, that's becoming uh, very clear uh, that, that all they're concerned about is the naked acquisition and use of power. And just like the right of self-determination, which even the United Nations acknowledges in, in their own founding documents, it's in there. It's in the International Bill of sure. Human Rights, the right to self-determination. That's they exactly. use it when it's convenient and they ignore it when it's convenient. They don't have any principles. That's it. No, they never no, had no principles. principles. At all. The only no, the the only thing that they seek is what I said ago the the naked the acquisition and, and use of naked power naked power naked <laughs> naked power. Um, so you know uh, the, these people are thrown off the mask and they reveal themselves for what they really are and and it's going to be trouble uh, putting them down but uh, they they have to be put down. Uh, we have to get ourselves out from under them at the very least. Well, absolutely. And that's my point. There's no turning back. This progressive agenda is never going to stop advancing. The, the last no. bill I wanted to mention was House Resolution 40, H.R. 40, which is from the same Sheila Jackson Lee that filed at least seven or eight bills to try to go after your guns. And, and she wants a commission to study and develop reparation proposals for African-Americans. So there you have it. Oh, imagine that. Take your guns and, and make it impossible for you to vote your way out of that, because it is, and, and then they're going to take your property and give it to these Negroes. That's right. And if you protest, then they'll take your life. Absolutely. Because then you're one of those white yeah. supremacists that they've also labeled as domestic terrorists. That's right. So they've got a license to shoot you then. Uh, well, after all, he was a white supremacist. Oh, well, okay, I understand. That's fine. <laughs> Go about your business. No, no, no great laws. So, yeah, I mean, they've covered all the bases. I mean, if if, pe if white people can't see the tyranny that's staring them right in the face now, then they they are absolutely blind. Absolutely, and and if if they don't, if enough white people don't wake up real soon, that then. We're going to witness that Bolshevik revolution. We're going to witness the Bolshevizing of America. And we ourselves, well, we might stand by helpless or we might stand by helpless in prison. One or the other. I, I... Uh, yeah, it's uh, not a very uh, inviting future for, for white people who are determined to 
act in their own self-interest and subsequently in the interest of, of future generations of white people, um, we're simply going to have to, to, to grow a backbone, organize, and tell these people to go straight to hell, that we're not playing this game. And we have, we have some options. You know, I, I, as I said, I'm optimistic about the future because I think white people will, uh, will remember who they are and I think they'll come out swinging on these things. I, I certainly pray that. Well, sir, that, that, that's the way it's supposed to end. Come out of her, my people, lest you suffer her punishments. So this road that we have to take, that we have to confront, this journey we have to confront, it's the only way for us to go. Yeah, that's right. Babylon the Great has fallen. Has fallen. Uh, come out of her, my people. Lest you uh, which, suffer her you know, punishments. I'm sorry. That's right. Absolutely. That's exactly, that's Revelation 18, I believe. Yes, sir. Um, so, you know, uh, that's pretty clear instructions as far as I'm concerned. Let's get the hell out of here. And and this is absolutely correct. And, and we've seen this pattern forebode, I believe, in, in that hate list published by the SPLC. 20 years mm -hmm. ago, they started publishing that hate list. And, and at first, yeah, was it was... It. At I was first, only it was twenty years ago. Right, I'm, I believe you were, sir. <laughs> Probably twenty-five. <laughs> that yeah, list first contained um, real white nationalists, maybe, and then they started adding more innocuous, more innocuous groups to it, like the Family Research Council, and and so so we see that that that's the pattern. It's first white nationalists, and and after that, it's ordinary white Christians. Well, that's right, man. That, uh, a parallel to that is we, we we Southerners have been telling other white Americans all along, you know, yeah, they'll come for, for the Confederate battle flag. They'll come for statues of Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson and Jefferson Davis. Uh, but a bit, they won't stop there. Eventually, they'll come for the United States flag. They'll come for uh, statues of uh, Ben Franklin and Christopher Columbus and, you know, non-Southerners. Uh, as long as they're white, they're targets, and a lot of those white folks who are non-Southerners today are beginning to see that we were absolutely right. Yes, sir. I do remember you saying those things four and five years ago, and, and we witnessed them just this last summer. That's right, and it's going to get worse. There not was... only are they going to come, you know, they come, I, I like to say, you know, they came after our songs, they came after our school and street names. They came after our flags. They came after our statues. The only logical conclusion to this is eventually they'll come after our lives themselves. Absolutely. They hate these symbols because they hate us. Back late last summer, I remember being stopped at a red light with my wife, and she had happened to look over at a Catholic church in Panama City Beach, and there was a statue of the Virgin Mary there that was knocked over and defaced. Of course. So, so they, they hate white people. They hate Christianity. They hate any manifestation of Christianity. Absolutely. Even if it's Catholic idolatry, we could witness the hate when, when they tear it down. Oh yeah, they don't. They don't distinguish. I mean, they're hell. They're they're tear, tearing down statues of Abraham Lincoln, <laughs> you know, which a Southerner 
Uh, we, we have mixed feelings about that. But the point is, Abraham Lincoln to them represents white America. Absolutely. Even Lincoln, that, that, that brought them out of their shackles of bondage. They hate him, too. That, <laughs> That's right. And and they're too stupid to figure out that he didn't sign the Emancipation Proclamation until three years into the war. <laughs> they're That's too right. dumb to... <laughs> yeah, late 1863. Well, the... Um, Skipping ahead in my notes, because otherwise I'll keep you here all day. I don't want to do that. But <laughs> that and, and you know what I'm going to say about the um, secession and secession as a legal construct and, and how that's, um, that, that's defined all on Yankee terms. That, that isn't even a legitimate argument, the arguments they have against secession. But aside from that... There is a news of a renewed secession movement in, in many states. And, and in Texas, where secession is a frequent subject of political discourse every couple of years, right? On January 26th, a secession bill was filed in the Texas state legislature. Now, now that will only call for a referendum, but that's a necessary first step in the process. And, and this right. time... Texas isn't alone because there's serious political discourse regarding secession in Florida that, that I would like to discuss in, in a few minutes, but I have a few other things to say if you'll bear with me, if you don't mind going sure. two hours. I'm sorry. But, but back in... Yeah, let, let, let's do it. Back in January of 2020, Francis Buckley... Now, now, this isn't any fly-by-night clown. He's a university professor at George Mason University School of Law since 1989. And this is a year ago. And he published an article, which was published in the New York Post, titled, How to Avoid America's Coming Secession Crisis. That they see the handwriting on the wall. They know what we are going to try and do. That they anticipate this happening. Now, the League of the South has been working towards, you, you yes. just informed me, secession for 27 years. So we are on the yeah, cutting edge. The 27 years, yeah. that, that, that's the League is on the cutting edge of what's becoming a trend. In, in December, a December 9th article, Esquire magazine, titled The Republican Party is now a seditious organization. And, and of course, they're politicking. But they used words in that article such as unreconstructed. A and nothing... <laughs> yeah, they used that word in their article of a Tennessee legislator saying that he was unreconstructed. <laughs> and nothing secedes <laughs> like secession. And, and they used those terms to describe the officials of 17 states which joined or which filed amicus briefs supporting the lawsuit initiated by Texas over the fraudulent election. Right. They, they described the elected officials of those states as authoritarian yahoos. <laughs> oh, man. It, it, yeah, right. The language is so bold that it's funny because they are everything that they describe and they are projecting that that term on us or, or on people that feel like we do. 
Sure. So they called the leaders, elected officials in 17 states, they labeled them as authoritarian yahoos. And, and that is the arrogance of liberalism. As if Nancy Pelosi and Chuck, sure, Chuck yeah. Schumer... That's one, that's one third of... I'm sorry. That's one third of the states. That, that, I'd, I'd say that's a pretty serious movement right there. Yes, sir. Absolutely. And, and we'd love that 17 states on our side, I know. Well, yeah, absolutely. Well, I was examining, just this morning, I was examining recent popular Google search terms. And there are a lot of people searching for secession information for various states, that, typing phrases such as secession Alabama 2020 or secession Alabama mm -hmm. 2021. So a lot of people are searching for information about secession. So perhaps... Yeah, they, they are. Right. And, and a lot of Southern, we shouldn't get too excited because a lot of Southern politicians have already taken a knee to the empire. But this talk of secession is encouraging. It's all over the place. Oh, it is. It's, it's everywhere. This um, David French, and I didn't get the chance to see if he was really French, but he published a book <laughs> recently titled Divided We Fall. And the title's longer than that, but that's all I'm going to repeat. And, and he postulates over the very real possibility of secession in a nation that is less united than at any time since the Civil War. And he's got that right. And, and in the yeah, opening pages, he, he wrote, at this moment in history, there is not a single important cultural, religious, political, or social force that is pulling Americans together more than it is pushing us apart. And, and that's absolutely true that these, that we call them blue state people because that, that's the best way to politically identify them. But these people are right. atheistic, that they're dominated by Jews or, or Negroes or people of other races. They have absolutely no care for middle American culture, values, religious beliefs, they'll walk all over it in a minute. We we have nothing in no, common with these people. No, no, we don't. And we also have enclaves of them within the southern states. I mean, uh, Georgia, for example, the, the reason that Georgia has two uh, Democrat senators, one a Jew and one a Negro, is because of the Negro-Jew alliance in Atlanta, which is pretty much uh, a cancer upon that state. And, and Atlanta is just a preview. I mean, you're, you're going to see that in other places like New Orleans and uh, Memphis, uh, Charlotte, uh, other southern uh, cities like that, where this cancer uh, that, uh, you know, dominates the blue states is in, uh, insinuating its way into some of the red states in the south. So we have our own local problems. Uh, there with that. So th those will have to be dealt with. Absolutely. And and that cancer in Atlanta has already spread to Columbus, Georgia, and it's spread to Savannah and, and a few small towns in between or smaller cities in between that there yeah, are. That's right. um, but, but it's all Atlanta and Atlanta is growing in, into a real beast. Uh, I mean, it's like the New York City of the South now. Yes. Yes, it is. It's a monstrosity. It really is. And, and the development in Atlanta, every time we drive by, that they are putting in subdivision after subdivision in the surroundings. Oh, absolutely, they are. 
Yeah, it, it's it's truly a metastasized cancer in Georgia, and it's going to affect uh, places beyond the borders of Georgia. Absolutely, it, it's um, I, I well, I think it is leaking into northeast Alabama, in, into the Gadsden area and towns like that. I really do. Mm-hmm, it is. Well, well, we pass through there quite often. I, I um, and Chattanooga also is horrible. Yes. Yes. We had a treat and, and there's been succession talk here in Florida, especially on the Southwest coast, the Southern Gulf coast, Fort Myers mm-hmm. and, and, and South of there, there are serious state level politicians talking about secession. But my wife and I had a real treat, I should say about three or four weeks ago where we found that secession talk among rather mainstream Republicans is real. It really is. So we, <laughs> that's good to hear what we entered into a restaurant in Panama city beach. And we encountered a man who had a table set up inside the door where he was giving away copies of a book titled divorce or civil war. So seeing that and, right. and the, Antifa insignia he has on the cover with a picture of Ruth Gator, Bader, Gin, whatever that witch's name is, Ruth Bader Ginsburg on the left-hand side of the book. And then on the right-hand side, he has a picture of a typically white family in front of an American flag. So he, he he's not totally on board with our way of thinking. And, and a little excerpt from the Pledge of Allegiance on the right-hand side of the book. So he's what we would call a patriotard, but he was a Christian who understands the handwriting on the wall, just in the yeah, title of his book, that's, Divorce or Civil War. It's encouraging. So, yeah, very encouraging. Well, we left a small donation in the jar when I took a copy of the book, right? And we thought the place was open, this restaurant, and it wasn't. So for a few minutes, I spoke to this man about secession and I left him some cards for, for our Florida League of the South chapter. His ideology is different from ours in that he uses that label fascists for these Marxist totalitarians. So he, he's really confused with mainstream education, right? And, and, but his values are close to ours and much closer than they are to theirs, right? He recognizes right. the Antifa as the cutting edge of the progressive Marxist agenda in America. And he understands that both, that he understands that and he understands that all the leftist politicians are enemies. And he also understands the difference between libertarians and Christians, that libertarians aren't Christians, which I was impressed with. I was impressed with that, right? Because a lot of people don't get that. A lot of Americans think that libertarians are, are the representatives of Christianity. I don't know. It's crazy. <laughs> but yes, it is. That's how well, people think. This guy sounds like he could be brought along and further educated. Absolutely. And I hope to see him again in the future. A- and he's not a toothless redneck the way the SPLC likes to portray such people. He's actually a former <laughs> right. Air Force officer. Right. So, so this he, was at a Rep- Republican meeting, you say? Well, well right. It, it turned out, I talked to this guy for five minutes, gave him some cards. We went to the bar, 
and we were told the restaurant was closed. And there were people loaded up in there, and, and I'm like, closed? No way. And and we said to the bartenders, hey, can we get a beer at least? And and he said, sure, I'll pour you a beer, and I paid him. And, and about six or eight beers later, we left, right? I don't know. Maybe it wasn't that many, but we were there for a long time. So, so even though it turned out the restaurant was closed to the public, they let us stay there. And they were only open because they had a private affair that evening. And they had a podium set up in the main dining area. So a short time after we got there, a meeting of the local Bay County Republicans was convened. <laughs> so I'm wondering what this guy's doing pushing seg pushing secession at a meeting of the local Bay County Republicans. Well, that does give me some hope. Right. Absolutely. I agree. <laughs> so That's this speaker right. took the podium and, and he was probably in his mid to late 30s, I would guess, 35, 38, around there. And he was well-dressed and well-spoken. So he takes the podium and he talked for probably about half an hour about secession. <laughs> he was actually promoting Secession as the only solution by which Floridians may preserve their way of life. Wow. There were about 40 or 50 people in attendance, and they clapped when he was done. They received his word favorably. They really did. I was shocked. So oh, um, That's amazing. That really is amazing. And, and he's actually a Bay County Republican Party official. So... so while Southwest Florida Republican legislatures, legislators are also speaking about secession, this sentiment isn't limited to the panhandle, but it's real, and it's in our mainstream politics, at least in some places. So we That's hope true. to spread it That's all true. over the South and even all over America. So, so Melissa struck up a conversation with a guy a couple of chairs down and said, I'd love this, that this man speaking to talk to my husband and the guy said, come on, I'll bring you over there and introduce you. So Melissa goes over and gets introduced to the speaker when he was done, and he came over and spoke to me probably for about 10 minutes, and I gave him some cards, and I thought I'd never see him again, but he came back 10, 15 minutes later. <laughs> and we talked some that more. Great. So great. I'm, I'm never going to be a Republican but it's kind of inviting, right, to get into this group and, and, and talk about secession. So I'm going to contact. I'm not going to go join the Republican Party, but I'm going to talk to him again soon. I'm going to reach out to him and make sure that, that this stays in the dialogue to the best extent that I can. Yeah, bring those people out of the Republican Party over to us uh, because the Republican Party is on a national level never going to be secessionist. But on the local level, in places like Florida, Texas, Alabama, Tennessee, other places, uh, you, you're going to find some people who, who realize, I think, that this is really the only way for us to protect our way of life. Absolutely. And if they're realizing it, then I know a lot of other people can realize it. Because they do realize it. They do realize the, yes, the, the problems that lay ahead, that there's really no other path. Uh, no, there, there really isn't. Because uh, we're, we're going to be so 
uh, handcuffed uh, in this uh, in this new system, this this communist run system, that we can't do anything. We, we're just going to have to get out of it and, and form a new system, one that's uh, favorable to our interest, uh, or otherwise, uh, you know, we're, we're simply going to go sink beneath the waves, as it were. So. It's it's uh it's it's a pretty clear choice as far as I'm concerned. Uh secession for survival. Absolutely. And and we only just presented and discussed a small portion of one week's worth of legislation and executive orders. That's right. That's exactly right. Just one week's worth uh, part of one week's worth should tell everybody out there, every white person out there who has any self-interest at all, that this is going to be a bad situation to stay in. Yes, sir. Yes, it is. It's time to stand up. And, and, and so, you know, um, after, the, the will to secede, the, the people better have it. That's right. And, and you know, we have, we have the precedent. You know, the, 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 the right of secession uh, was not destroyed along with the Southern armies uh, at the end of the war between the state. And that's, that's one reason that the uh, used to put Jefferson Davis on trial is the we'll lose in the courtroom what we want on the battlefield because these people were absolutely right in their right to secede. There is absolutely no way that we can win this case against President Davis, so we better not put him on trial. Uh, they came out with some subsequent Supreme Court decisions that, in in uh, after the fact, said, "Well, secession was not legal, but that that is neither here nor there. That didn't change the Constitution." And everybody who's who's really viewed this from a constitutional position realizes that th- there's a simple fact at play here, and that is this: is what is not denied to the what what is uh, not denied. Uh, to the federal government by the Constitution. And, and remember, the Constitution is, as Thomas Jefferson said, a chain to bind the federal government. Yes. It, it does not bind the states. If right. something is not prohibited to the states and secession is not, then it's it's a right that, that is reserved to the states. And any good lawyer, constitutional lawyer, will have to admit that. So... You know, it's 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 a matter of power that Lincoln and the Republican Party used to subdue the South. It was not anything that was legal that they did. It was an illegal invasion, uh, just a naked use of power. So, from a reasonable constitutional legal standpoint, that right still resides with the states. And as you point out, it's just the will to use it. You know. Absolutely. It, it's everything that's not explicitly, every power that's not explicitly granted to the federal government in the Constitution is reserved to the states. The states don't Absolutely. give any power at all to the federal government implicitly. None. It's explicit. No, it's all explicitly given. It's all spelled out explicitly, and everything that is implicit is reserved to the states. I think I discussed it with you in our last presentation, or maybe the one before that. I don't really remember. But 
the federal government did something very sneaky in 1869, in my opinion, the, the Supreme Court especially, because in 1869, in the case that they love to point to that says that succession isn't legal and, and that's a yeah. lie, is Texas versus White. It was that's a Supreme it. Court decision, 1869, the majority decision was written by Salmon Chase, who, who had formerly been the Treasury of the Secretary, or I'm sorry, the, the Secretary of the Treasury for the North during the war. He was made a, right. a Supreme Court justice. Well, Salmon Chase wrote this decision in Texas versus White that used the Articles of Confederation as the basis for ruling against secession and calling it unlawful. But the Constitution replaced the Articles of Confederation. So in, yes, in I, seven, I, might, I might add that they did it illegally, but they did replace it. They did it illegally, but they did it in That's order right. to form a more perfect union. And in the Articles of Confederation, the union cannot be broken explicitly. There's explicit language in the Articles of Confederation that basically prevent secession on paper. Yeah, that's true. But the Constitution... Which means that the Constitution... How did the Constitution ever come about if that were the case? Absolutely. <laughs> the, the U.S. Constitution, which forms a more perfect union, mentions nothing about that union being binding. Nothing. That's right. Not a single thing. A, a reasonable man would look at that and understand that the articles ha have been absolutely abolished just, just by the fact of history that we've been living under this Constitution. And we all agreed, all these states agreed to this Constitution. But a reasonable man would understand that because that explicit language is not in the U.S. Constitution, that the founders purposely decided to leave it to the decision of the states, to leave that power right. to the states. Absolutely. That's, uh, that's part of what the Tenth Amendment's all about. Well, Salmon Chase, he, 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 he pulled a sleight of hand and cited the Articles of Confederation. And, and if that were the case, then there should be term limits and, and all sorts of things, which were good, which were in the Articles. Sure. But there aren't. So once well, again, know, once again, they give our documents lip service when it's convenient and ignore them when it's convenient, whatever serves exactly. their agenda. That's it. And that, you know, I think it's very important for, for us as Southerners and other sympathetic people, sympathetic to secession. I think it's important for us to lay out our legal case. And we have one. And I think it's very important, even though the other side uh, only gives lip service, as you just pointed out, to legalities. I think it's important for us to say that this movement, this, this modern day, uh, early, uh, you know, 21st century secessionist movement is firmly grounded in the American legal tradition. Now, that's not going to mean anything to our enemies because they don't care. They, it's like you said, they use the Constitution. When it benefits them and when it doesn't, they just tear it up and throw it away. And they'll do that this time. So it's really going to amount to, to 
you know, uh, who's got the power. Uh, but I think it's very important for us to lay out a, a good, sound, legal uh, situation, uh, uh, legal precedent here, using legal precedent. Because, you know, our, our people uh, are, are people who have respect for the law and, and these kind of legal traditions. The other side doesn't. So it's really going to boil down to who's got the power. But um, I, I do believe that we need to challenge them and, and say, you know, we're, we're out of here and we have precedent for doing it. Now the ball's in your court. What are you going to do about it? Yes, we sir. already know in the league that states like Florida, Texas, uh, you know, other states, Georgia, um, you know, could, could survive and, and thrive as individual republics or whatever form of government the citizens chose to establish. Uh, but the South as a whole, you know, as a confederation uh, of these contiguous states, would be a world powerhouse. We've had studies done in the league over the course of a quarter century that shows that we would be the third or fourth largest economy in the world, you know, behind uh, only the remainder of the United States and in China, uh, we'd be ahead of the Soviet, uh, excuse me, Russia, we'd be ahead of uh, Germany, France, England, United Kingdom, uh, we'd be ahead of all these. Uh, we'd have a huge population of probably around, uh, you know, over 100 million people. And, you know, after we got rid of all the undesirables, uh, it would be a very, very strong population, a strong uh, workforce. Um, you know, we, we would be a superpower on our own. And we don't need the rest of the United States dragging us down into this, you know, godless, atheistic, communist hellhole that, that, that they have planned for us. So not only would we survive, Bill, I think we would thrive as, as a separate uh, political entity down here in this part of the world. Absolutely. I mean, that's one of the Florida League of the South's, um, what, one of the pamphlets that I tried to give out the most is Florida as a sovereign republic. That uh, Yeah, we've done studies for, for most of the southern states, that would, and we update them that would show just how capable a state like Florida or Texas or, or others I mentioned would, would, would be uh, extremely viable economically and politically. Um, you know, we, we don't need Washington, D.C. I mean, that's just a weight around our neck dragging us down. Right. Any one of our states could, could compete with any nation in Europe economically. Sure. The, the, the GDP of, of Florida would compare favorably uh, with most of the European countries, and the same goes for Texas. Absolutely. Even not counting not counting the Mexican restaurants. I'm sorry. <sighs> yes, exactly. <laughs> That's right. So, you know, we're, we're, we're not some wild-eyed dreamers, fanatics out here. We've studied these things. We know. And, and besides, look at, all, look at all the policies. We wouldn't have gun control. We wouldn't have open borders. We wouldn't have abortion. We wouldn't have all of these, uh, these, these terrible things that get forced down our throats. Uh, right. you, you know, and, and you go back and you study the legislation, and you'll see that, for example, in 1965, 
uh, uh, bill that opened up the borders to non-whites that every southern state, all of the representatives and all of the senators voted against the Hart uh, Seller uh, Act that, that opened up the borders to non-whites. Every single southern legislator, Senate and House, voted against that. But we had it shoved down our throats anyway. And the same can be said for other legislation regarding gun control and, and the other things I mentioned. So we basically have our legislation dictated to us. Absolutely. And, and it's mostly by bankers and, and Jews in New York and California. Absolutely. And, you know, you, you, you mentioned earlier about a piece of legislation to, uh, you know, overturn the Electoral College. If you do that, then the country is going to be governed basically by New York and California. Yes, sir. And it's going to get even worse. So, you know, uh, it's a pretty clear situation developing to me. Uh, the, the South and other red states uh, leave this union or they perish. It's that simple. Absolutely. I wholeheartedly agree because that's where we're headed. And, and New York and California, what, with a few Yankee enclaves in between, that they're going to rule yeah, over us so, all. We're not going to have a choice. We're going to be a banker's empire forever. Yeah, that's it. That's it. So, yes, all of this would be traumatic. I mean, there would be major fundamental changes. But look, going through the turmoil of these changes is much better than sitting here and accepting the fate that you know is coming to you. Well, well, I know for a fact that the League of the South has its vision and, and it's spelled out in its position papers and, and we know what we want to replace the empire with and, and we know where we could be headed without it. it. It's difficult to get people to actually read it all, but this is absolutely 100% plausible and, and possible. And, and if it's not possible, well, all things are possible with God. That's right. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I, I sort of uh, I sort of use this example. It's something that everybody could could understand. But, you know, let's let's say you're 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 in your house and it's a really, really cold, blustery, snowy, icy winter night, you know, temperature down around zero. And all of a sudden your house catches on fire for some reason. And you say, well, uh, I like my house. I'm comfortable in it. Uh, yeah, it's on fire, but man, it sure is cold outside, and I don't feel like getting out in in this mess at 3 a.m. So I'm just going to sit in my house and hope the fire goes out. You know, well, the fire ain't going out, and yeah, it's going to be cold outside, but, <laughs> you know, you, you've got a choice to make. You can go out into the cold for a while, or you can stay there and you can burn up with a house. Yes, now, sir. A smart person is going to go out and go experience a little bit of discomfort in the cold before they can go and find other shelter, but at least they're going to live. It's going to be trouble. It's not going to be fun, but at least they're going to survive. And that's kind of the situation we, we're in because the damn house is on fire and yes, it's not it going is. to be put out. Yes, it is. It's only going to burn so, worse. It's going to burn down, so you got to get out of it. No matter what you walk out into, that's going to be better than burning up in the house. Well, that's why we're warned. Christians are warned to come out from her, my people, because it is that's going right. to burn. That's, 
Well, that's about as plain as you can get. Absolutely. Thank you, sir. Oh, it's always my pleasure, sir. You know that. I always enjoy being on your show because we always have some good conversations. We will have you back before summer. (laughs) Thank you, sir. I appreciate that. March or probably March sounds good. Well, that sounds fine to me. Sometime in March would be great. Praise Christ. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Bill. I appreciate it, sir.